Okay, so uh, let's get caught up to speed, all right? So Nehemiah, uh, we're in chapter 5 uh, there, and I'll just keep saying it because I know for some of you, you have no idea where Nehemiah is. And ever since I said it, you're just like, where is that, okay? So I'm going to give you some time to catch up. Uh, Nehemiah is a cupbearer to the king of Persia. Persia is the dominating uh, force at the time. Uh, Around 586 uh, BC, uh, the Babylonians came and crushed Israel, destroyed uh, Jerusalem, and took a bunch of the people. A bunch of people were exiled out. Daniel was one of them. Uh, and about 150 years later, and throughout the last 150 years, uh, some of the exiles have been allowed to return. But we also see that there's a lot that are still scattered throughout the known world. And, and some are in Persia. And one of the individuals uh, who has grown up in Persia, but he's a Jew, is this guy named Nehemiah. And he's been given this role, uh, we don't know how, but he's earned it through trust and, and just he's, he's worked his way up to being the cupbearer to the king, the most trusted position uh, that was available. And as he is serving the king, uh, a report comes from Jerusalem, uh, from a fellow Jew, and, and he shares with Nehemiah the condition of the walls of Jerusalem, how they're completely destroyed, the gates are burned, and it absolutely destroys Nehemiah. It just breaks his heart. These are, these are his people. And, and, and Jerusalem was to be the picture, the image of the glory of God. These were God's chosen people set aside to display his glory. And the thought that the walls, the very thing that, that represented strength uh, and, and, and represented safety. And, and, um, and, and honestly, to a lot of people, it represented the perspective of who God even was. And He just couldn't fathom that that was the image of God. And so he weeps, he he mourns, he prays, he goes into this time of of, of fasting for four months and and just seeking God, like, God, what what do you want me to do? This this, this cause, it's so much bigger than me. And throughout that time, God establishes this vision, this burden that Nehemiah is chosen to go and to lead this incredible task, this incredible vision of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Now, I want to just pause here for a second, because as we've gone through this, and it's been awesome to hear, I've I've been like flooded with stories and and just different uh, events that that have happened in a lot of your lives, where where you were like, man, I had my Nehemiah moment, or I'm in the midst of it, or God's given me this vision, this purpose, this burden or for a specific cause. And, and, and that's awesome and great. Um, but then there's others of you who are like, I have no vision. I have no burden. Like I'm here, I'm receiving, but I don't know what to do with it. And, and let, me, let me answer both of those questions. The first is this. If you're here and you're like, man, I love God. I just don't have any idea what my wall is or my thing. Start with you. Start with you, okay? It's very clear in scripture. Every single person uh, was designed and created for a specific plan and purpose. And so God has a plan and purpose for you. And, and sometimes, and, and it has to start somewhere, right? It always starts with you. And so first and foremost, what is just God asking me to do in relation to him and my relationship with him? And then you allow him to build the vision. The other thing is this. 
The other tendency is to take anything that I desire to do or desire to have and then go, oh, that's my Nehemiah moment, right? Just nod, okay? Now, how does this play out? Oh, that job sounds really good. That's it. You're driving in the neighborhood with your family and you drive by that house and you can see everything happening in your life that you've always desired. And you look at the house and you lean over and say, that's our Nehemiah, right? Or for some of you, maybe you are on the hunt for a spouse and it's, there they are. And you go, that's my wall. No, you're going to get a wall, but that... You know, like, and, and we laugh, ha ha. Some of you are like, ha ha, right? Because that's what we do, don't we? We, we take biblical truth and we all do this. I do this, right? Uh, and, and, and we go, man, I really want this to happen. Okay, God, get in the car. Let's do it, right? Versus God pulling up. That car is better than mine. He knows where he's going. I know my car doesn't. I'm going to get in there. And I'm going to let him dictate the vision, the plan, the purpose, right? I'm going to let him establish the burden. I was thinking about this yesterday. I was like, man, the, the, just the, the thought that, that I'm in Eugene, that my family's in Eugene, that was never on our radar, like ever. Like it was never like, okay, if we could just, everything works out, we'll arrive in Eugene, okay? That's where, that's, that's where we need to be, never. In fact, I had just driven down the five. Uh, I, I didn't even, I didn't know anything about Eugene. Okay, and, and here we are, right? Clearly, we're here. And, but that was an unexpected burden. <laughs> You're not a burden. Unexpected, yeah, you are, you are, you are. Uh, it was an unexpected vision that God had for us, right? So, so it was unexpected. Some of you have had things and, and it was not, you weren't planning on that. You weren't anticipating that. And then God's like, God just shows up and you're like, Okay, and then you pray, and then God does what only God can do, okay? So that's what we're talking about. I wanna be really, really clear on that. So uh, let's start reading here in Nehemiah chapter five. They've started the work. He's gone. He's, he's, uh, God has blessed this vision. Uh, God has given him favor. He's given him finances, all the materials. They're starting to rebuild the walls. Last week, we looked at the external opposition from the surrounding people groups, uh, not wanting them to complete this mission. So we talked about that. And then we pick up in Nehemiah chapter five, and we'll look at verses one through five, and it says this. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. Okay, so last week we looked at how there was opposition coming from the outside. Now, what we all need to know is this. When the enemy is opposing us from the outside, and it's not working, he doesn't give up. What he does is he just changes up 
tactics, doesn't he? And he starts the opposition from within. And when he starts to oppose us from within, and in particular, any group of people who are committed to a vision, he loves to start with this weapon called selfishness. And, 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 and from his perspective, if he can get us thinking only about ourselves and what we want, then he wins before we even realize he's at work. Okay, like, like one of the things that's, that's interesting about selfishness is it, it's like you don't see it coming, do you? Right? I, like I know for myself, I'm not like, ooh, the selfishness is really rising up. With it. Like that's never happened. Now I know when I'm getting angry, I know when I'm getting frustrated, but selfishness doesn't like, like shoot off these flares for me, right? It's usually something to where I realize it after the fact and then I'm apologizing for it, okay? But, but he loves to use this. And what does selfishness uh, mean? Selfishness means putting myself at the center, putting myself at the center of everything and insisting on getting what I want when I want it. And at its extremes is when it starts to be used as an avenue to exploit others to help me either gain an advantage over them or get what I want from them. And it also, in that place, expects everybody else to want my way too. And so you just need to know, like, like, like it's, you know, a lot of times we're, we're always like ready, right? We, we think that the, the opposition is going to come from the outside. It always catches us off guard when it comes from the inside, when it's from within. And, and why it's so hard to define and identify until it's too late is oftentimes he uses selfishness and we don't see it, Right? And, and, and so what happens here, what we're looking at today is in the midst of a great work, right? They, they are going after this wall. They're building, they're rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, uh, these gates and all of that. But in the midst of that great work, all of a sudden there's just this great cry, right? And, and what happens is, is all the people who have been working on the wall, they all approach Nehemiah with what? They're not crying out about the opposition from outside the walls, are they? All of a sudden, the opposition that they're crying out about to Nehemiah is about their own people. Now, what was going on? Well, first, there was a famine happening in that region. So they're running out of food. Okay, many, many of the workers, remember last week I talked about how in order to work on the wall, they, they had to sacrifice, right? They had to sacrifice. It wasn't like their, their other job, their, their, their lives, it wasn't like their, their lives just conveniently went on hold while the wall dominated their time, right? Um, and so they, a lot of them, in order to work on the wall, neglected their fields. Uh, they, they neglected uh, the, the jobs that they had before. Um, for some, uh, to deal with this financial pressure, they, they had to mortgage their farms and their homes in order to just buy food for their own families. They were also still obligated to pay this large tax to Persia. 
And so they're forced to borrow for that. Once their land was mortgaged, they had no choice but to mortgage themselves and then their children. And we see in ancient times, family members were often used as collateral. And so if, 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 if a man couldn't repay the loan, his wife, his children could be sold as slaves. And the worst part of all of this is that some of the nobles and the city officials were profiting from this crisis. See, they had extra grain, right? They had extra grain to sell. They had money to lend to the people. But what were they doing? They were taking advantage of the people by loaning money at high interest rates and selling grain at inflated prices. Well, that sounds familiar. <laughs> Old Testament doesn't, uh, that doesn't work for today. So, so these, these, these noblemen, the, these um, city officials, they're literally holding mortgages for homes, land, and farms. And most disgusting of all, they were I- accepting their own countrymen and their families as collateral. They were allowing their neighbors to borrow themselves into slavery. I mean, I mean, first of all, just the, the ethics, the, the morality of this are disgusting. But, but what they were doing was also a direct violation of the law of God. See, uh, the law of Moses forbade charging interest of another Jew. They were not allowed to charge interest of their fellow Jews. In Exodus 22, uh, 25, it says, If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. The law also forbade uh, permanent slavery for unpaid debts. Okay, Uh, in Leviticus 25, uh, verses 39 through 42, this is what it says. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of the Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants whom I have brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves." Okay, so, so, so they couldn't do that right? I've heard before, oh, the Bible endorses slavery. I'm like, no, no, it doesn't. See, an, an Israelite who couldn't pay their debts, they could be hired as a servant, but not ever sold as a slave. And, and specifically as well, a, a fellow Jew could never be sold to a Gentile as a slave. Exodus 21.8, it says, if she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken uh, faith with her. Okay, so, so that's the law. That's very clear. You can't do that, right? That's against the will of God. And yet these nobles and these city officials are literally auctioning off fellow Jews and their families to the highest bidder. 
And, 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 and when you look at how like God designed society and culture, specifically the nation of Israel, one of the reasons for the year of Jubilee that you heard me mention here, uh, the year of Jubilee, it, the reason for it was to balance the economic system in Israel. Okay, because uh, on the 50th year, the year of Jubilee, all debt had to be forgiven and all land restored to its original owners and all servants set free. You're like, man, they need to start that back up, right? And, and, and so these nobles, they were selfishly exploiting the poor to make themselves even richer. And so the people, they're starting to put this together. They're starting to figure out, man, you have extra food. You have extra money. I'm getting ripped off by you. This is against the law. And so, and so this is happening. They're watching their friends, their family. They're watching them being sold into slavery as they're trying to, to fulfill this incredible vision. And all of a sudden, enough is enough. And here they all are going to Nehemiah going, what are you gonna do about this? Forget the wall. Like, forget the wall. And so what Nehemiah has here, he's got a big problem, doesn't he? He's got, he, he's got a major alignment issue going on with his people here. And, 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 and some of you, you know, you've, you've driven your car and you know exactly what I'm talking about with your alignment, right? When your alignment's off, it's like, man, things are straight. The car's not going straight, right? And, and what's happening? Your car's actually starting to work against itself. And, and, and we see that that's what's going on within Jerusalem, within in the people of God. And, and you guys, what we know is this. Visions thrive in an environment of unity and they die in an environment of disunity. No matter what kind of organization you're in or what you're trying to lead, when personal goals and agendas conflict with an agreed upon vision or corporate vision, the vision will suffer. Why? Because when there's conflicting agendas and goals, uh, it, it, what it does is it pulls us away from the main goal and it pulls us all in these different directions into the ways, uh, into the desires and goals that we have, the directions that we want to go in. And, you know, I don't have to preach to the choir here. Many of you, if not all of you, have experienced that. You've experienced either being a part of a team, you've experienced it within your family uh, where there was agreed upon, there was an agreed upon vision. This is what we're gonna be about. This is what we're focused on. This is our, our priority. But then all of a sudden, right, some coworkers, a spouse, some kids, all of a sudden start to go, yeah, that's what we agreed to, but no, I wanna do something else. So, Nehemiah's got this major problem. He knows he can't ignore the problem, but he also knows that he cannot lose sight of the vision. See, God, God hadn't called Nehemiah to go to Jerusalem to fix the economy. The vision was to rebuild the wall. But what Nehemiah was wise enough to realize was that those two were linked. And he also knew that if God was going to bless this incredible vision, it meant the people had to be obeying God. And he knew that God wasn't gonna bless that if what was happening continued. And so this is how he responds. In verse six, it says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. 
I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers and they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Okay, so Nehemiah is understandably upset. He's very angry at what he hears is happening. Now, sometimes we go, man, am I allowed to be angry? You guys, what you need to understand and know that what Nehemiah, his anger, it wasn't this sinful temper, right? What Nehemiah has here is what we call a righteous anger. Okay, now, now, what is a righteous anger? I know what a me anger looks like, right? A righteous anger is it's anger because of what that situation or that person is doing to God. A, a, a unrighteous anger is I'm mad and upset because of what? What they're doing to me. So, so a righteous anger is all about God is the focus and I'm angry because of what it's doing to God, to who he is, to his vision, to his plan, right? And so Nehemiah sees what they're doing and he knows this is, this is against the will of God. This is against God's plan for his people. They are disobeying uh, him. And so it literally says how he, his heart consulted within himself. Uh, in other words, what it's saying here is he's getting control of his feelings and his thoughts before he addresses the people. Okay, in Proverbs 16, uh, 32, it says, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Okay, so he's angry. He, it's a righteous anger, and yet he takes time to get his heart, his feelings, his thoughts in check before he deals with these people. Then he calls the people together, right? Calls them all together, and he's gonna confront these uh, nobles publicly. And, and how does he start when he addresses these noble, uh, these nobles, these uh, city officials? The very first thing he does is he reminds them that they are exacting interest from their own people. Like sometimes we just need to hear what we're doing, right? Because we don't process how evil it is. And so he just says, you're doing this to your own people. Like, what are you doing? You can't do this. This is against God's will. This is against God's law. Next, Nehemiah reminds them, and this must have been tough to hear. <laughs> Next, he reminds them what? 
that he had just spent a bunch of his own personal money in order to what? To buy back the Jews who had been sold as slaves to Gentiles. So he goes, I have been ever since I got here, buying them back. And you're now reselling them? Now I have to buy them back again? And then he tells them to consider what this is a witness to, to the surrounding people groups, the surrounding nations. What is the image of God based upon what they're seeing from us right now? Have you considered your witness? Have you considered how this distorts and destroys the image of God? Remember, these are God's people. He has set them aside to be a light. And we, and we see this term here. We see this phrase, the fear of the Lord. And he's calling them back to a fear of the Lord. And guys, when we, when we talk about a fear of the Lord, it's rooted in a desire to honor the Lord. The, the fear of the Lord, I, and when I hear it said, um, it, it's, it's so often portrayed, it's, like, it's, like, it's almost like, this, like this, this slavery to this like master, and you're just afraid at everything, and, and if they ever are there, and, and, and all that, and there's this, like, just this fear, this panic, right? And, and sometimes we've, we've heard sermons that that's all it produced, was like just panic, and you're terrified of God, right? And, and, and your whole mindset was, I just don't want you to get mad at me right? And that's how you left. That's how you lived your life. You guys, the fear of God is, is, the, is not that. The fear of God is this, is this reverential awe of who God is. And it's literally, I, I, I'm, I'm, I have a clear perspective of who he is, a clear perspective of who I am. And I know that everything in me is created uh, to bring him glory, to honor him, and to obey him. And, and it's not out of this like, I, oh my goodness, I'm going to make a mistake. No, it's because of the love and, 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 and it's, it's this mindset of I want to honor my heavenly father because I love him so much, because he's so great. It's not from this like fear, right? It's, it's I want to honor you because I love you, because of who you are. And, and, and so what he's doing is he's calling them back to this, to this fear of the Lord. And, and, and to fear the Lord, you guys, it, it just means to seek God and to glorify God in everything we do. The remarkable thing about fearing God, wrote Oswald Chambers, is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. In Proverbs 19, 23, it says, the fear of the Lord leads to life and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm, okay? Some of you need to rebuild and reconstruct what fear of God has meant to you. And then Nehemiah shared with them, once again, what he was doing, how he was actually lending them honey without charging interest. He says, I've been, I've been lending the money. He told them, you need to restore the interest. You need to give them back their property. And what's their response? They obey. They obey Nehemiah. And Nehemiah responds by saying, hold up. 
let's make this official. Where's some priests? You're going you're gonna to deliver an oath before God. And so that's what they do. They make this promise before God that they are going to change and that they are going to honor him. And we see that Nehemiah concludes by shaking out the folds of his robe, symbolic of what God would do with these individuals if they didn't fulfill this vow. And we see that all of the people, as they're gathered together, they respond collectively with an amen. We agree. And then together they praise the Lord, it says, and the crisis was resolved. It's amazing how when you actually deal with issues and problems, how it can ultimately bring about praise. And, and here's what I just want to say. You guys, it, it, it's okay to have problems. We're all going to have problems. But it's not okay to ignore them. And how big they become will be determined by your willingness to address them. And I don't know about you, but I have this tendency, and I see this tendency in a lot of us, and it's this tendency to wait and to see if things will work themselves out, right? Oh, hold up. Let's just see if it works itself out. How often has that happened for you? Because I know it, I don't think it's ever happened for me where it just works itself out. Hold on, let's just, you know, we have three boys. Honey, let's just let them work this out. Doesn't happen. Something else happens. See, the longer we wait, the more complicated things become. And when it does appear that things have worked themselves out, what I've come to find out is that just means the problems have gone below ground. They're beneath the surface now. And when they come back to the surface, guess what? There's more people involved and there's more drama. There's more issues to be resolved, right? And, and so if God has birthed this version, this burden uh, on your heart, you need to understand and know that there is too much at stake to allow these alignment issues to go uncorrected. And so what do you need to do? You need to do the thing that you fear, right? You need to pick up the phone right? You need to make that appointment. You need to talk to that person. You need to go to them um, in person uh, and, and talk about it. And you need to bring them back to the original vision. You need to bring them back to the heart, to what God is, is calling them to, just as Nehemiah did. And, we, and, and, we, and then you got to ask this question. What in the world was it that led the city officials to respond this way to Nehemiah? Have you asked yourself that? Like, like, where else in Scripture do we just see them go, you're right. You're right. I'm, I just, you know, we're going to make everything right financially and everything else. Here is what we need to understand with this. First is you need to understand that your influence is far more critical to the... To the <laughs> Let's try it again. First, you need to understand that your influence is far more critical to the success of your vision than your position. When we talk about uh, influence, influence is such a funny thing. It's, it's very hard to define. It's hard to describe. But you know when somebody has it, and you know when somebody doesn't have it. 
And you're, you're more than likely aware of the people that influence you, right? The, the people, uh, the groups, the podcasts, the influencers, but you may not be sure why you allow them to influence you. You might not be sure why. It's something about their lives, something about their lives, who they are, their agenda. It gives them authority that translates into influence in your life to where you allow them to influence you. And what I would venture to say is it's the alignment between that person's convictions and their behavior that makes their life persuasive. And, and, and the, the, the phrase that best captures this is moral authority. Moral authority. You guys, moral authority is the credibility you earn by walking your talk, okay? It's the relationship that other people see between what you say and what you do, between what you claim to be and who you actually are. It's the alignment between conviction and action, belief and behavior, okay? So, so that's the moral authority. That's where that influence comes from, and, and, and that's how these people you've allowed to influence you. That's probably how they got that seat of influence anyway. Um, but then you've got to also ask on the, on the flip side, how do we respond to people when there's a contradiction between what they claim to be and who they are? They lose influence, don't they? You go, I'm not giving them influence over me anymore. Like you think of things that come out about people or, or truths or things that were hidden and you go, man, I'm not letting them influence me. I'm not listening to that voice anymore. I'm not following them anymore. Why? Because there is a contradiction between who they claim to be and who they actually are. And you guys, we see this all across the board, right? Just say yes. We all fall into this. I mean, just for a moment, think about your parents. Now, if you're sitting next to your parents, don't look at them. Okay, um, but when you think of your parents, okay, my kids are too young, they're not in the gathering, so I'm safe. Um, do thoughts of your mom and your dad, do, do, do those thoughts elicit just feelings of respect? Once again, don't look at them. I want you to think about it, uh, your employer, right? Whoever employs you, your boss. When you think of your boss, do you just feel this, man, I respect that? Same thing could be with your spouse. Don't look at them. But I would venture to say the thing that you have an issue with, with any of these people who are very close to you, who you're around a lot, is this disconnect, right? And you see it. And you're going to see it more because you're in their life a lot. So it's a huge issue for us. It's a huge issue when we see it and we, and we, and we go, man, that, there, it's, there's alignment there. I'm going to follow them. Man, I trust them. But then there's also the flip side of that, right? Like, like I'm not going to follow them. I'm not going to allow them to influence me. And when you guys look at this story, when you look at Nehemiah confronting literally the most powerful people in his community, we see them apologize in a public setting. I mean, confronting someone publicly, whoa, that man, good luck. And, and, and literally, we see them apologize and return all that they've taken. And I just go, why in the world did these powerful nobles, these city officials, full of pride, full of self, selfishness, why in the world did they do that? They did it because Nehemiah had moral authority. Nehemiah had moral authority. Look at verses 14 through 19. It says, 
Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily uh, rations, uh, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance." Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Okay, why did, why did Nehemiah have this moral authority? Why did they respond this way? You guys, when Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem, remember he's given this title of governor and he was one in the long line of governors assigned to that region by the Persian government. And, and, and the previous governors had used that position to enrich their lives, to build themselves up at the expense of the people. With their appointment came the right to levy taxes at their discretion. Like, oh, I want, I want this kind of income. I can have it, right? In addition, they had a, a right to a portion of everything that was harvested. So all the food that the farmers produced. They had a right to whatever portion they wanted. And so his position literally entitled him to be able to exploit the people he led. And every governor before him had done that. And, and, and yet, what do we see him do? He goes out of his way not to replicate that and not to be a burden on the people that he led. For, for, for an entire 12 years, during his first term as governor. This is how he lived. This is how he served. And, and, and throughout that whole time, as he's not taking what he could, what, what you know, by all accounts would be rightfully his, he's also at the same time, with his own money, purchasing back slaves. This whole time, all 12 years. And, and, and once again, he wasn't like sitting up in his ivory tower, right? He and his leaders that he brought with him, they're participating in rebuilding the wall. They're there on the wall with the people and they're helping defend the wall. And not only do we see that he paid for his own food, did you catch what he also did? He shared what he had with others. I mean, he regularly fed over 150 guests, both residents and visitors. Over 150. I mean, if you were one of the animals in Nehemiah's flock, you knew it was coming, right? I mean, this dude, he's feeding people. He is inviting them. I mean, he's throwing parties that you and I only dream of, right? All throughout these 12 years, just demonstrating his love, his care. He's with the people. I absolutely love this. And then we see his agenda, his motive in verse nine, and it indicates that his service was why? Not to manipulate the people, not to gain influence. It was to please and honor the Lord. 
He was there to fulfill God's vision for his nation. D.L. Moody said, a holy life will produce the deepest impression. Lighthouses blow no horns, they only shine. It wasn't Nehemiah's position that gave him the leverage with these nobles and these leaders. It was the continued alignment between his beliefs and his behavior. See, moral authority, this this is the result uh, of, of this commitment before God to do what's right, even if doing what's right appears to potentially jeopardize your influence. Don't miss that. See, this is where a lot of uh, people who are pursuing this vision, this plan, or they're leading others, this is where oftentimes they veer off course. And, And it's with this. As a leader, you have to be willing to do the right thing, even if it jeopardizes your vision. You're like, huh? That doesn't make sense. See, at some point, you are going to be faced with circumstances that on the surface will seem to dictate that you compromise ethically or morally for the sake of your vision. And the Bible's full of examples. Uh, if Abraham, Abraham's a clear example, right? Abraham has been given this vision, this plan, this purpose, right? It's clear. You're going to have all these descendants, right? And so what happens? This miracle birth, He's given this child, right? Incredible. There there it is. The fulfillment of the vision. It's rolling, baby. And then God says what? Kill it. What? Kill it? Kill him? God, that's not the vision. It's not the vision you gave me. Do you... you, His obedience to God superseded the vision. And what did God do? God intervened. David, the same thing, right? David David has been promised the throne. You're going to be the king, right? Well, who's in the way? Saul. Who's trying to kill David over and over again? Saul, (laughs) right? And, and, And then all of a sudden, it's like Saul is just handed over on this silver platter to David. He is like in a porta potty in a room where David's at in this cave. And it's like, there you go. And, and David's people, his, his, like, his close friends are like, God is so great. Look at that. He's right there. Kill him. You're, the, you're going to be king, right? There's the fulfillment of the vision, right? And no, it wasn't. His obedience to God superseded that. It was bigger than the vision. And you guys, you've got to ask, what is your ultimate allegiance to? Is it maybe this vision, this desired outcome that you believe God's calling you to, or is it just God himself? And guys, if it's a God vision, if it's a God purpose, if it's a God burden, he will intervene just as he did in those situations into your life, into your vision, and he will do whatever is necessary to make it come about. See, Nehemiah faced this this incredible ethical dilemma, right? He's aware of these injustices that are happening. It's right in front of his face. They bring it before uh, him. Uh, and, and, and then he's like, well, well what, do I, what do I do, right? Because to address this problem is to address the very people who have the power to derail the vision. 
right? They've already stopped the vision right now. The wall stopped. They're not working on it right now. Um, and, and, and these power players, uh, these influencers, they, they can destroy what I want to do. And so he's got this, this dilemma in front of him. What do I do here? What do I prioritize? And he took the risk, right? He confronts the leaders. And, and the why he did it is what's so important, right? He would not bend on his integrity before God. He would not bend on it. Everything was about the glory of God. Everything, including his vision. And he's able to submit that at the, at the feet of God. And so when you face a moral or ethical fork in the road, here's the question you have to consider. Would God lead me to embrace a vision that would force me to do something he forbids? I'll never forget my dad's quote. I've said it before and it's just, it, it's all, it just sticks with me. My dad said many things. And this one has just never left me. My dad would always say, it's never right to do wrong to get a chance to do right. Obey God at all costs. Hold your vision, even if it's his, with an open hand and watch him intervene. Guys, I want to ask you a question as we close our time. When you think about the alignment in your life, the alignment of what you say, what you do, the convictions with the actions. Where are you at there? Talking about influence, this moral authority. What is this hitting on in your life? Is there disunity? Is, is, is alignment not there? And I would, I would ask you to consider what that is and I would ask you to address that today. I want to ask you, does, does your allegiance to God supersede everything else to where no matter what happens, you trust him? He is so worthy and he can handle whatever it is that you're dealing with or you're facing, but you have to trust him. And, and guys, I can't stress this enough. If, it's not, if the enemy is attacking you from the outside and it's not working, he is already at work trying to get you from the inside. 